0: Thank you for tuning into Brick and Mortar. Uh, We hope your spatial distancing is going well. In our support of the social distancing concept, we've decided to make an intermittent change to the Brick and Mortar podcast. So for the next few months, we'll be doing shorter segments called Co-Video Chats, in which we'll be connecting with people over video chat to record smaller 20-minute segments. Uh, This allows us to make more content with more people, which we hope will have a meaningful contribution to your entertainment while you're in isolation and social distancing so thank you very much for isolating um stay safe out there and be good to one another so i just recorded this episode with mac wilder which is an unreal name i just realized um and he works in the commercial lending space for businesses and uh, a little bit of real estate um, for a institutional size uh, lender investor. Um, I pick his brain on sort of how the environment has changed but also um, the direction that we're heading. Um, I think you'll find it really insightful. Obviously deviating quite a bit from my original uh, 20 minute episode intention, but uh, but beyond that, things have been, been really good. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, buddy.
1: Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. Good. You? Busy. Busy. Thank goodness it's Friday.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna make sure I'm on my right mic here. Um, Built-in. Can you still hear me? All right. Yeah. hear me Can you you me mics. Fine. Okay. All right. I just my my daughter's just in the other room, so I don't want you to pick up the Lion King. No worries.
1: How's that? No worries. How's your little one? She's doing really good. She's kind of bummed out that
0: uh, she's house arrest for yeah, it's, it's until tough. this is over. So. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a tough one to explain to uh, the to little ones, right? Oh yeah, they they don't understand. I mean, <clears throat> one of my coworkers, she
1: had she has kids, and so yeah, she just came back from vacation.
0: Yeah, her friends had to basically wave at each other across the street because oh, they man. couldn't i know it's heartbreaking like i mean my, my daughter's uh she's just learning how to socialize um and so because she's she's three and there's a, a group of kids around the corner yeah that, that we noticed now that we've been out walking and stuff we just moved into a new neighborhood and, so, and she wants to go and meet them obviously but you know it's not not that simple
1: yeah this is this
0: isn't exactly the time that uh socialization is going to happen too much yeah i know i know it's crazy anyway um so how are uh, how are you dealing with everything on your own individually
1: individually um work has taken up actually a large portion of my day right um but in terms of personally uh, my family has a retirement home as well nice so they're even under more scrutiny to keep them kind of away from everyone else and isolated yeah Uh, so yeah that's I can't really go home. I can't quite right. Like, I'm not going into work, so it's really just me and the checkout cashier at the grocery store that I talk to occasionally.
0: Right, right. right. So are you working from home now? Like, and, yeah, absolutely. So do you, you still get to interact with your coworkers a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, we talk through either this or um, just over the phone, email, etc. But obviously, it's not the same. than
0: you're Classic cubicle setting.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: That's nice, though. I think it's been a bit, it's been a really interesting uh, work from home experience for, for a lot of people or experiment for a lot of people. And uh, hopefully it goes well and, and allows for a greater temporal flexibility in the future. I think that's, I'm just going to flip a light on. I'm still listening. Yeah,
1: for sure. I think that that's a really good point because a lot of employers had hesitation of people working from home. Right. Um, and obviously with this everyone's not not uh, not in the office the biggest hurdle i find and i find it for myself and i'm sure it's the same for other people uh, when you have an office setting you can kind of base your life around i'm going to be in the office at nine 30, yeah. 30 and i'm going to be home for five yeah, yeah and i'll build my life around that when you don't have that um it's very easy for you to lose 10 minutes here 20 yeah. minutes there for sure distraction so it's there's a lot more individual discipline but I sure. think you could do more
0: yeah good interesting insight um I guess we'll, we'll jump over to the script maybe could you uh could you start by just giving me a, a brief introduction of, of you um and you can go back as far as you want and then sort of uh, an explanation of how you got to where you are what you're doing now and uh and the role that you're in
1: sure so for me I grew up in a on a farm Uh, way in small rural Ontario out near Bayfield. And I think my uh, elementary school was 200 kids. So everybody knew everybody. I was in Aggie for the longest time. In fact, I milked goats for two years in the mornings during before high school. So I would wake up at five, go to my neighbor's, milk goats, and then go to high school. So it was certainly a Different lifestyle than what I think a lot of people experience um, but ultimately, I uh, really enjoyed it now, perhaps waking up at five in the morning was not exactly uh, the thing you wanted to do in grade ten or grade eleven um, I
0: feel like it's, a good, it's a good training for for uh, the the suck of life though like I think and I think a lot of people that have more privileged upbringings or different upbringings don't really get the uh, the full experience so
1: Yeah, no, I retrospectively, I wouldn't trade it for the world because just exactly what you said, your ability to um, not only experience uh, the suck, but thrive in it and be able to push past it and endure it um, is really one of the key uh, metrics, I think, if you're ever going to want to succeed in life. Um,
0: For sure. sure. I think think our generation is really like this is probably the first time that anyone in our generation has really even experienced struggle. And I think that you start, we were really starting to see that come out with a lot of the oppression Olympics, I would say, and, you know, in social media and stuff like that where, you know, people were were looking for, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of really, really meaningful causes and, and, and suffering out there, but I think that there were a lot of people that, you know, came from privilege that didn't really understand how meaningful that was until, something like this happens right and, and i think we're all absolutely hopefully emerge from this with a lot more gratitude
1: <laughs> yeah i mean at the end of the day there are so many generations that have had it way worse than us for sure and we're really standing on the shoulders of giants and some of those people uh were really just scraping by simply to survive um so i mean having i think the biggest thing when i was growing up was there was a power outage i think that was in the 2000s yeah yeah I remember I I remember I was playing a video game at my friend's place and his power went out and they had friends over and shit hit the fan I can't believe we can't play games everyone was going stir crazy and then that lasted for like a week Um, and those who didn't have generators and all that that was that was something but I mean and as well as the internet what we're doing right now just simply did not exist 15 years ago
0: it's funny i watched a lot of those uh those prepper shows on netflix and stuff and um, one of the biggest like end of the world scenarios is you know the internet disappearing how quickly society would just fall apart if if it, if it wasn't there so i think we're lucky that you know our current doomsday scenario is, is just a pandemic and not not the, yeah not the collapse of the internet <laughs> oh god forbid So far, fingers crossed yeah, yeah
1: yeah jesus don't don't speak it into existence here but yeah. Yeah, the amount, of, the amount of people that had, uh, have successfully completed Netflix, <laughs> they've, they've mm. watched everything. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's so much stuff that you can do now that you simply couldn't do back then. Yeah. Um, and one of the struggles that I had, even as a teenager, and a lot of people in some of the cities just never had, was, was small towns still had dial-up up until... In fact, some of them still do uh,
0: up until 2010. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I actually wrote a blog maybe like two or three months ago um, about how I think we're going to see a similar evolution from, you know, there was a, a point in, it was, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe it was like you know 30 years ago when um, long distance calling made it challenging for people to live in, in like work from home as an example, in, yeah. a, in, a, um, in a rural community. And, and there are places in the GTA that, that had that, right? And, and yep. same as what you're saying, like rural areas. I think I, the post that I wrote was with the advent of Rogers Infinite. So the first time that we'll basically have um, infinite 3G. So now people can, now they're not uh, left Layered like up. ExploreNet or whatever it is, right? So now I think we'll be able to see, well, I'm interested to see kind of the way that that will make its way into the, the pricing. Because small towns are really like my... That's my my big area of interest. I don't think anybody else is really doing research on them, and I've been I've been really intrigued as to the the information system of real estate and the function of it in in small towns and and the role that it plays uh, and is gonna play. Um, Ipsos released a a poll or a a big um, data set that basically said that um, boomers are, are they all want to live in small towns. And I think that, you know, this COVID-19, if anything is going to exacerbate that trend because now they're, they're extremely vulnerable, especially if this becomes a cyclical virus, right. And mutates mm-hmm. like, a, like a second influenza. Um, you know, they're not gonna be able to afford to live in urban areas from a health perspective. Um, and, oh, for and, sure. And boomers are the ones with all the capital right now. So I, I, to me, everybody wants the sex appeal of focusing on urban real estate. I, I mean, I just, it, it doesn't, that's not my thing. So it's it's cool. Interesting to hear your perspective firsthand.
1: I remember reading actually that article and I actually do read every single one that you post out because- oh, I appreciate that. I, sure, some of it may not be applicable or maybe it doesn't just really grab my goat, but there's some that really do. You're your one piece about just municipalities and how they're competing against each other um, for your- uh, for you to live there, yeah, uh, is was an interesting one because you never really think of it like that, right? But that's that the whole internet thing really ties in because if you look at any municipality that has invested in infrastructure, internet being one of them, yeah. um, that did that 15 years ago, they are so more advanced and so more well off uh, than those that delayed for. For, for sure, five eight years. For sure, and it's just funny if you're not if you're not the first mover,
0: then you're with the rest of them, and then there's no real momentum there. That's yeah, that Ricky Bobby phenomena, phenomenon, right? If you're not first, you're last. If you're not first, you're you bet. Um, okay, no, so let's uh, let's jump back to COVID. Um, where what you're doing in your role, what your day-to-day looked like, you know, a month ago and, and how it looks today and, and how that, that, that transition happened.
1: Yeah. So as a commercial lender, um, I originally was an analyst. Uh, so that is much more, uh, I always call it like a keyboard warrior. Yeah. A lot of it's just analytical work, case study after case study, after case study. Um, but that's where you really get your, grind your gears and, and learn how to uh, uh, understand risk and understand financial statements in the different industries. Now that I'm a relationship manager, uh, what I do on a daily basis is I'm the face of the organization, um, as well as I'm the face for the client. So I communicate to my members what uh, the bank would like to do or their mandate, so to speak. Um, but then I also speak internally on behalf of the client as to whether or not the terms are okay, um, areas of concern or their happiness. Um, positive feedback is definitely encouraged. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, so in terms of what I do on a daily basis is just herding cats is a big thing. Right. Uh, just working with a lot of other professionals and people's professional teams. So you've got accountants, you've got brokers, you've got agents, you've got solicitors, you've got um, someone's mom who apparently is an expert and wants to provide input. Um, So there's lots of that, making sure that it doesn't get stalled as well as all of our internal guys. We've got credit, we've got our back office support that provides funding. So there's lots of people, lots of hands playing with it. And you have to have a really good understanding of that entire runway and kind of poking around to make sure that it's moving. Right. Um, So there's lots of that Uh, business development. I mean, now it's kind of stopped, but uh, historically, uh, a month ago, that was a really big thing. So you're out having at least five to eight meetings, knowing that Really, only one of them truly mattered. Um, But just trying to keep top of mind. I'm sure as an agent, you know what it's like to just, again, be top of mind. And Well,
0: and I do do some business development with a group that I lend with as well. So I I can understand there. I mean, that that sort of is just a a natural synergy that evolved because I was sending them a lot of clientele from the commercial developers and Mm -hmm. owners that I was working with. Um, but yeah, like my my thing was, and you might hear it in a couple of the podcasts that I, I've released over the past two days. But I, I love not t- taking meetings anyway, and and I don't do it because I don't like being around people. I actually get a lot of energy from around people, but I just I love being at home and being able to hang out with the girls, and um, and so I I, I was always like, it, it, like I really feel super <laughs> cut out for this this change because yep. I'd rather do everything as much as I can over the phone. Know, just pick up the phone and make calls, and, and and so my BD is actually ramped up as a result of this because I can't really do the operational side, being That's at in the field and showing properties and whatever, right? But I can. Yeah, make, I guess that would be impacted pretty hard on that. Yeah. So, I, but I can be originating relationships uh, at scale now because I'm just you know locked in my house with the phone.
1: Yeah, and there's power over the phone. I mean, growing up in a small town, email communication was never never my forte. Um, But if you get me on the phone, I can talk your ear off. Uh, And there's a lot of power in that because a lot of people want that. They want someone that can pick up the phone, have a conversation. At the end of it, they feel like they know the person, they've been informed on stuff.
0: Um, I think it's uh, there's also a selection bias with the type of person that you're trying to reach, right? Like, you know, young people, like, I mean, I love young people to get me wrong but they're not the ones that have all the money and and no so and and what what you and I are doing right now I mean this will be posted on social media and, and that's the best way that I can build relationships with the young people it's it's pretty easy to do at scale and guys like you and I know how to do that intuitively because we are young people but mm-hmm. there's a lot of young people who don't who aren't picking up the phone and calling and there's so much business on the other end of the line like the amount of old guys that I will call up and they'll be like, Oh, I've been waiting for a young guy like you to call me. You know, I, my old, my last uh, relationship that, you know, the guy doesn't want to work as hard or whatever. Like I'm just looking for somebody who really wants to, you know, and they want to see that grit. They want somebody who reminds them of themselves. And yep. all you got to do is find these people like, and, and pick up the phone with the right intention, which is, you know, to, to find a way to add value to their life and just communicate that to them. Hey, I, the purpose for my call is because I want to build relationships with people like you so that I can figure out how to add value to your life. I mean, if somebody called you and said that, you'd be like, holy shit, like that's, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me since I was born. Right? It's
1: true. I mean, it's the, the idea that someone appreciates what you've done and want to be involved and help you to get to the next level or maybe help you find out some of your blind spots. Um, that goes a long way. I remember reading, uh, I think it was Zig Ziglar. He said, you can have anything you want in the world as uh, you can have anything you want in the world. If you help enough people get what they want. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's so true. Um, where if you just, you're in the idea of giving, it, it'll eventually find its way around.
0: For sure. Like even I, I, when, when I train agents who get anxiety about cold calls or door knocking, I'm like, you, you, if, you, if you felt like what you were doing was the right thing, you wouldn't be nervous right now. So why are you upset or why are you nervous? And, and the reason is because you think that you're calling to try and get something from somebody. And it's like, well, there's an exchange of value. Lead with what, what can I give to this person? And if you go in with the intention of giving something to them, they're going to tell you if they don't want what you're giving them. And that's, and that's okay. That's, you've given them the opportunity. But if you're, if you're trying to take something, then that's where you feel that, that anxiety because you don't think what you're doing is correct.
1: I always like to use the uh, ice cream example. Uh, there's a lot of people in the world who like chocolate. And if you go out handing out chocolate, because you love chocolate, there are going to be some people who look at you in disgust and yeah. say, get that out of my face. Where's vanilla? And that's absolutely okay. It, the, the, the issue is, is if you don't like chocolate and you're trying to pawn off chocolate,
0: that's when you're exactly what you said, you're going to have that anxiety. Yeah. And you get the resistance to really
1: giving something.
0: Um, so what, how is, how's the, the commercial lending world being impacted by this? pandemic like is underwriting changing is the cat herding relationship management that you just described changing I guess like tell me if you could just a list of the, the big impact that, that this has had so far and, sure. and um, if you want to forecast a little bit of how you anticipate that that impact will continue or grow or decline
1: sure so for the first part everything has become more collaborative right um, even in the business world, uh, everyone has a job and they're really good at it, but everybody has different mandates. And especially with COVID, um, there are some people who are closing up shop. There are some people who are experiencing bottlenecks and there are some people who are twiddling their thumbs. Um, so in the business world, um, new business if you're in the mode to grow you're probably gonna have to wait in line because and i've told all of my prospects in the various areas in their pipeline um that you're gonna be put on hold until i help as many of my members as possible and get them all kind of on a plan as to you're okay, you're okay now, but if this goes, it's going to be bad or you're not okay. We need to, we need to address that. Um, And so new loans, it's challenging. Everybody's applying for deferrals. Um, In fact, one of the things that prompted me to kind of start this whole, uh, me getting on the podcast was, was the one thing you sent out that the media is oversimplifying uh, how easy it is and who qualifies for a deferral right. um because certainly when it was on the news it made it seem like everybody and their uncle could apply 100 percent approval rate and it's gonna go like that right that's just not how it works not at all and anytime the government <clears throat> excuse me anytime the government is involved in something they'll say something but after it gets beaten down between all of the lawmakers and everything, it's kind of an abstract as to what it was originally promised. Yeah. Um, so for, so for me, uh, let's say out of the 10 people that come to me who need, who need assistance, I'd say 30% of them are opportunists where they're just, they don't actually need it. They've been taking out of the equity out of their company for years. It's just they've never developed a plan to have cash in there and now they're feeling the squeeze. They're feeling the suck. And as a lender, as a responsible lender, do you give them more money? Or this is a kind of a learning thing where, all right, you're going to have to put some money into it and see where it goes. Um, So in terms of lending practices, we're still doing our due diligence. We're fielding the calls and the needs as they come. Um, that's where a lot of my time is spent right now is just analyzing people's financials, see where they're at, see where they're really at. And at the end of the day, uh, a bank or any lender is is a business too. So they've got to protect their balance sheet. They've got to protect their assets. Um, and they can't defer payments forever.
0: Um, they've got their own operating expenses to do. Right. And I mean, based on the, what I've heard, I had a, had a conversation with one of my lenders this morning who who called me because I had requested the deferral on, a, on a, uh, my principal and um, they first had said, well, you have money in your account. Like, why are you asking for this? And I was like, well, I don't know. Cause like, I, I want the playing field to be level, right? Like, I, I don't know. Yep. I, mean, I should, maybe shouldn't be in, interpreting the, the free market economy as a, as a race, but like if everyone else is getting a deferral and I guess that's the perspective tenants have, right. It's, um, you know, if my landlord is getting a deferral, why should I have to pay? But, um, you know, they, they had said to me, well, there's a penalty and this isn't a big six, by the way, it's not a B lender, but mm-hmm. it be somewhere in the middle. Um, but if like there, so there's a penalty and you're paying the interest for that month anyway, so they're still making their income. They're just not, uh, you know, recollecting that principal, So they're not getting that equity that they have in your house back for a couple of months. It's not a huge issue, I mean, even at scale um it, it could play with the ratios of their cash requirements um, from the government and the banking system but do, what's the real risk here like if if and I think the the government has tried to shave a little bit of that off by lowering the cash requirements and backing up some of the debts and CMHc's kind of jumped in to say they're not going to let anybody fail in that sub twenty percent equity category but and I don't know if the real estate space is, is the right place for me to be asking you this question, but even on the business side, like so on the, on the commercial lending side, like, are we going to see a high default rate? And if so, we are, I mean, or does that depend on how, how long this economy is semi shut down for?
1: <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting, good question, um, but how I have it right now is. How do I put this a bank only cares about two things is how does it get paid? And ultimately, how does it get paid? And the first one is, is everything is going smoothly. How are you going to get paid through your operations, rent, sales, whatever? The second one is generally collateral. And when people ask for a deferral, whether you're in a um, in an environment like right now or normal a month ago when someone needs a deferral it means the first method of payment is in jeopardy so the risk becomes if I don't have enough funds to pay for this mortgage why and what could happen after that Um, at the end of the day a a bank isn't in business to sell assets doesn't make money selling the stuff that it loans money to buy. We're going on the promise that you're going to make money and there's going to be return on that. And we'll both be better off um, in the retail space. There's a lot of jeopardy there because if you're going for a deferral and you don't really need it, then you're putting a strain on, on that. But also there's false positives and false negatives on on who's really going to default here um and then that kind of leads into the second thing is especially in the past 15 years as our broadband has increased banks need for human capital or people at the front lines has dramatically reduced the amount of people that can do online banking uh, has exponentially increased And so the amount of people that are at the front lines who are able to assist people have actually uh, significantly reduced because of automation, but automation is not helpful in these types of scenarios where someone wants to pick up a phone and call someone and say, Hey, I really need this default or this deferral on my mortgage. I don't want to default. What are my options? You're not, you, you don't get the same kind of calmness after that conversation. If you just read a, a, a billboard message or an alert on the company's website. Right. Um, so right now the banks are actually having a huge issue where people have to process these deferrals and there's just not an, the same amount of bodies as there was maybe in previous uh, situations that we've
0: had. Um. From a from a policy perspective, do you think that the government handled it right? In like, cause, because I mean, they could have just deferred everything, right? Like Italy did. Like they could have just said, "Look, mortgages are." They could have just paused uh, the economy of of financial liabilities, of the accounts receivable and payable um, for the for the whole economy for a month or two or three or whatever. Um, did they? I'm gonna have to jump uh, just out of the screen for a second while you answer this question, because my daughter's fiddling around looking for some food, but. Uh, do, do, do you think that the, they executed it properly or do you think that like, do you think that they kind of created, they basically just pawned off this problem on the banking system uh, who's now scrambling to cover the, these resources like, like you just described. I mean, like would it have been executed better if it just became uh, mandatory that lenders couldn't charge uh, or couldn't, couldn't have make people service payments for a period of time?
1: Yeah. So the big thing there is there, inability to make a decision. Uh, and when they did make a decision, um, they all the information was provided to everybody. Um, and I can talk a little bit about that later. But so when they came in, they weren't very proactive. They let everyone go on March break, which caused uh, a huge blow up in the amount of cases, which, of course, ramped up the, the hysteria. So, they didn't act. And then, when they did, um, it was kind of not really set in stone and it wasn't definitive. There's a lot of vagueness in their policies. And the policies they put in place now, we really won't know what they look like uh, for several weeks. So, if you're a lender, you really don't know. if you're gonna get support on that or the regulations and the decision-making process that you have is in line with the same type of regulations that the government had said. So it's very easy for them to say, well, when we were gonna do it, we need these types of conditions to have been met. You've only done three of the five, therefore we can't cover you in a certain percentage of the loans that you sent out. Um, And that's not unique to just the banking world. remember my my parents own a retirement home one of the things they had was they were the first type of industry to shut down and they were given the same amount of notice as the general public and so when they came out and said that they're shutting down everybody went into a mess um, hysteria and buying everything so those supply chains became challenged and that first line of defense, so you've got hospitals and you've got uh, retirement homes and um, rest homes, et cetera. They couldn't buy supplies or they were challenged to buy supplies. Uh, and so when it comes to the government providing that stuff for the accounts receivable, I, I don't—I wouldn't be able to confidently say that pausing everything would have been a good decision. Um, but again, I don't think there's really
0: any good decision in this particular. Yeah, there's, area. yeah, that's why I, I'm just curious. like, it's a hard, such a hard dialogue to have because like, nobody has the answers, right? It's not like anyone, you know, could have predicted anything like this. I mean, you, you could have, maybe we had two to three months of lead time and I, and I am a little bit uh, disappointed in the way that the government's handled it, knowing, you know, like seeing this arise in, in December, January, like, I, I feel like I was, well, people were making fun of me in January for talk, even taking this thing seriously, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that the government kind of was playing along the same rules. Um, what... Yeah, I mean, the,
1: the, no, the, these past two weeks have been extremely critical. Um, and for what I found just from dialogue within my organization, um, as well as listening to the news, uh, as well as other businesses, these past two weeks really have just been trying to figure out what people need to figure out, yeah, and that's not a good time when you're drowning you don't learn how to swim and you're drowning right it, it's just it's not productive, and you don't have time for that
0: yeah, I agree um, what uh, what do you think the the, the long term implications of this are going to be um, or is it too early to say um, what's going to happen from, you know, from today for the next, you know, two months, for the next year? Um, Like, what does that all look like?
1: I think the way that I've um, kind of explained it to some of my members is I see the world economy broken up into maybe three or four phases and each phase or tier is going to be impacted depending on how long this lasts. So your your first tier are the ones that are impacted now or they were impacted yesterday or when they're you're non-essential. So you've got hospitality Um, if you are a restaurant, you're going to be hurting and you're hurting now. If you're a person who just purchased a real estate investment that's supported through airbnb and a majority of them have seen cancellations you're going to be hurting now um if you're a hotel you're going to be hurting now if this moves on for about two months um i think that's when it's going to start bleeding into uh, the retail or the personal side of things the amount of people that have let alone two months of emergency funds
0: is not, not very high. Um, so that you're that, going to see The scary part is, is, and you're seeing it like companies obviously are living <laughs> paycheck to paycheck, including oh, ones that are publicly traded, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: the idea that, that this big businessman has all this money and is taking advantage of his employees. I mean, that's, if you have that narrative now i i don't know what to say that's simply that may be true for two percent um but the majority of businesses nowadays they're they're not printing many hand over fist they're competing against people here they're competing against
0: people overseas and there's just it's it's really funny. It's evolved into an interesting kind of thing because I've I've always rented price floor product like I, I purchase um, you know multifamily residential stuff that most people wouldn't even want to enter and, and um, a lot of my my tenants are are in the welfare system and I, I'm I take pride in being able to provide affordable housing to that category of of tenant um, and not a lot of people want to do that. It's not sexy. Um, no, and, and it's funny because you know earlier you know, last year or whatever, this was people, you know, guys who, who are also renting um, that work in the same space as me. Got my daughter running around here. Um, but uh, they, they, you know, people who would call me a slumlord, I would say to them, you know, how, how are your rent checks looking now? Cause my, my people already have their employment insurance and, and their, and you know, you, now you, you guys are gonna have to wait for that and for your helicopter money to see payments. Like my portfolio is going to be fine to be honest.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize or maybe they don't realize, but they don't acknowledge uh, the legitimacy or the, the actual potential. And that's just risk. Um, when people are renting to someone who's uh, maybe paying a premium, uh, they can therefore buy a more expensive product and therefore they're dealing with more money. Um, but then they're at risk where if there's a lag in the amount of, uh, well, if there's a sudden vacancy, like we're seeing right now, then, then they're just more money. And if you don't have the ability, ability to cover that deficit, that becomes very challenging. Whereas, um, when you're dealing with someone who's maybe on ODSP or supported income, I mean, that's a long-term tenant,
0: uh, so you have that consistency there. Um. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I also think it'll give a lot of people a better, uh, hopefully a better perspective on, on the function of the welfare system. Now that, um, you know, we're all, we're all party to it because like, yeah. I mean, seriously, like what, it, what were the, the EI applications, you know, were 2 point something million over the, yep. over the, you know, so I think, um, or I guess in Canada it was like nine and almost a million, but still, I mean, um i hopefully from a social perspective you, people will begin to realize that you know these these are things are here for, for us to support them and, and you know if you're in a time of need that that's when it's there and and there are there are people the people who are who you might have been making fun of in the past who are on those on those systems are, are have been in a time of need
1: right <laughs> yeah that's that's always an interesting point too because um those types of facilities are there for someone who is in need, and if you're not in need, sometimes people just lack the empathy to understand that. Well, I'm okay. Why the hell? Why can't you be okay? Yeah. yeah. And that's a definitely a different, different, and difficult conversation to have. Um, but really, those types of things are there, um, and those reserve funds are there for this type of scenario. And we're fortunate that, I mean, our government is doing some interesting quantitative easing here. Yeah. Um, they keep keep puni- pulling rabbits out of the hat and you just wonder how many rabbits are left.
0: Um, if, what those rabbits are gonna be worth by the time it's all said and done.
1: Well, yes. Um, and so when you're in good times in the past 10 years, that's when you should be saving, paying down debts, creating that a slush fund because you know the suck of life is going to happen. I mean, on a personal side of things, everybody should be, if whenever we walk away with this, assuming tomorrow they develop a cure and by next Friday, we're all back in the office, it should be a very, very good reminder that everybody should have at least three to four months of an emergency fund. Yeah. Um, and if that means that, the place that you're living at is stopping that or the lifestyle that you have you really should question that because sometimes the government won't pull a
0: rabbit out of the hat and save you right right, right. assuming that right now they'll they'll save you right yeah i mean it's it's so easy to say in hindsight and i know i'm sure that you had that uh, that perspective prior but it's funny you know now talking about this because like i've been following guys like dave ramsey Sure. Ever Right, where he's like, you know, pay off debts, get an emergency fund, and now you, you know, you start to see. I guess the challenge becomes, and this is sort of maybe one of the last things that I, that I'll leave you with before we start wrapping up. But you know, is this a like for people who do have have that that emergency fund? Is there a way that someone like that can establish an advantage, a meaningful advantage over others in society? And I don't mean this in like the in the respect that like we're competitive, but like reality is we all want to give the best life that we can to our family and to ourselves. And, and, but like, I, am feeling like, okay, I I did have some money set aside for, for an event like this. And I don't really feel like I have a better opportunity than everyone else because I did. And maybe that's not what it's for. Maybe it's just to get by and, and, and maybe the best um, externality of that is that I'm able to, you know, to help others, through something like this and and maybe that'll pay dividends for the rest of my life. Or maybe, maybe I shouldn't be expecting dividends. I don't know, but like the challenge becomes now you get almost like this socialist economy where, where people, and I don't mean it politically socialist it's an economy that's almost socialist, right? Where we're all just trying to, to distribute these resources fairly amongst one another. And if that means that I have to pay a tenant's rent for a month, two or three, because I didn't defer my mortgage, and then hopefully, you know, get reimbursed when that helicopter money comes. Like, what? How does does this create an imbalance that's going to be lasting? Like, it, I feel like it's going to take the economy a long time to to rebalance all of this whole thing. Well, two things,
1: I guess. The first one being is anytime you have a situation like this where there's quantitative easing. And for those, that just means the government's printing money to um, basically provide it to the economy
0: and inject it into it. But actually, just to just to compound that, they're not they're delivering it to the economy through uh, bond repurchases. Yes. Right. So which is different than just get printing money. That's like the new U.S. philosophy, which Canada's recently adapted in desperation mode. Anyway, I'll let you continue. Yeah, no.
1: Thanks for the clarification, though. But the, ultimately what happens through that is it keeps assets uh, at the same level of uh, value or higher, and it reduces the overall purchasing power of individuals. So the difference between those who have and those who have not um, becomes greater because the original purchasing power of the people who didn't have uh, becomes worth less. And so there's it just creates that gap, even though it might seem like everybody's saving. I mean, it just means that you might not have the ability to purchase uh, something that you once may have been able to in terms of the you made a comment about you have this money aside and and I have this money aside, too. I mean, full disclosure, I exited the investments uh, or I cashed out on all of my investments at the second or third quarter of last year, because there's just no way that we can keep having the type of growth that we're having. Right. I can't say that I predicted a, an outbreak or a pandemic to trigger it, but you made a comment. I remember it. It was, it's not the size of the pin. It's the size of the balloon. Yeah. And for me, I thought that that would just, it was going to happen. It was going to happen quick. Yeah. And so for me, yeah, I'm sitting here with a pile of cash and it's perfectly it's not impacting me in the sense, but I know there's a lot of people who didn't do that. They don't have the, the flexibility, I guess. They've got um, a wife and they want a house and all that stuff. And I mean, it's just that everybody makes decisions. Sometimes people make decisions informed or uninformed, but ultimately those decisions have consequences. And if you want to believe your financial advisor And they can say that you can borrow up to a million dollars and stretch it out. Um, And so you do that and you're living paycheck to paycheck. Um, You put yourself at risk for these types of scenarios. And if your house isn't your piggy bank anymore, because everybody else is in the same boat and they have to sell or downsize or do something, that's when, someone who has cash can step in because then they can purchase assets, not at the price that they once were, but uh, there's obviously a supply and demand thing there that causes the price to go down. So you're right in terms of uh, in a philosophical or a, um, um, it feels like you're kind of taking advantage of people because they're vulnerable it could never have happened and I'm the market could have jumped up another bunch of percentage and, and I'd be out.
0: I mean, at the end of the day, we all make decisions. I just, I just think that, but it's also, it's not like you're going out there taking all that, the cash and, and flipping Lysol and toilet paper, right? Like, I mean, oh, just, yeah. like like, I mean, there's a, there's a bad way and a good way to capitalize on this, I suppose. Absolutely. What what are you? So you talked a little bit about real estate values. Um, Do you what are what's your read on that? Do you anticipate asset values are gonna we're gonna see a decline? Like are we gonna? I I, my my perspective. I'll just briefly explain is that you know there's a little bit of fat or froth on top of the market right now. That would be like sort of your the toxic assets, cash negative stuff. Your Airbnbs, condos that are losing money, vacant units, and pre construction anything. I guess not condos that are losing money, but any assets that are not make, not cash positive that people, anything that where people are really pre- expecting an appreciation in value, those things I think are going to get just trimmed off because I don't think we'll be in a value appreciation environment coming out of this, but I don't know if we'll see a meaningful decline cause I think there's enough opportunism out in the market that it should prop up any kind of, I think we might see a couple of up and downs, you know, 5% down and then it restabilizes and, Kind of, like, the 90s, I think it'll be slow, yeah. I don't think it's as, as, as big either, but anyway,
1: if you want to, I touch see two that, things. Um, the first thing is if this goes to a certain period of time, and I uh, if people really don't have the same type of savings that uh, some of those stats say were most people don't even have two months savings, right? Um, and the support that they're getting from EI or these deferrals. Um, aren't enough you're going to see a surge of that type of people with who own this type of product and it'll be interesting to see uh, if people are able to kind of pick that up again uh, in terms of your froth so you're talking about your condos and stuff I mean to be honest I think condos are a little bit overpriced simply because of the appreciation plays um, with their cash negative but eventually it'll be worth more than the negative yeah for that time period, um, as well as Airbnbs. Um, yeah, you're going to see people offload that on the, from their portfolio. Yeah, I think you if it are. gets to us, yeah, there already are. Um, but you're going gonna...
0: to. things in, in Toronto, sorry to interrupt you, but the like ice condos and stuff, I mean, you're seeing like massive supply floods in buildings like that already. And I think that my fear is that that creates a race to the bottom scenario. And I really hope we don't see that happen.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a scary thing. And I mean, we see it, we see it with other things. And as silly as it sounds, I mean, we see it with toilet paper. It's it's a race to the bottom in the sense that I'm going to buy five, I'm going to buy six. It's just people are fear of missing out. And if I can't sell it here, well, I'm going to sell it lower than you because I don't want to lose it. Um, And so the, the, the second part to that though, is you talked about pre-construction or construction, how that works is, They need to have a certain amount of pre-sales done in order for um, those jobs to continue past certain percentages of completion. So if those pre-sales aren't happening, then that means that the future supply is going to be impacted. And in the future, um, I mean, we've already had a supply issue, Uh, say three years down the road, you're going to see uh, available units. Toronto can realistically produce about 17,000 units a year. And we've seen that for the past I don't know, 10 years or so. Right. Uh, new stock. You're going to see a drop because of this. Um, and how much of a drop
0: will obviously depend because there's no one's buying um, those types of units. So that's like your insured, But so, it, so are we caught in a, in a weird supply scenario then where a lot of these insured deposits, like especially if the, I know they're trying to keep construction sites open and the unions are having none of it. So, I, I mean, some of these projects where they do have insured deposits, those, you know, those, those units are being sold for 20 to 30% overmarket value of the building right beside it right now. Um, the, you know, it sells out in a couple of days, they start uh, breaking ground and building the tower. Now the units aren't appreciating value. The building might no, no longer be being constructed. What the hell is going to happen to this deal? And, I mean,
1: and that's exactly the risk when you're buying pre-construction is what happens if this construction doesn't happen?
0: Um, and that's- so like the deposit insurance, cause like the question is who walks here? Like does the developer walk or does the does the purchaser walk and then who Cause if the purchaser walks the developer benefits from the, the deposit. So I can see the developers still wanting to like, they're still in as long as the insurer doesn't go bankrupt, which some people actually think is a, a real risk, but mm-hmm. if the insurer like, so if the developer still has an incentive to continue developing this thing, and that's why there's this huge conflict between builders and, and owners of, of uh, these, these condos because builders and, uh, and developers, um, because you know the construction guys won't don't want to be treated like an essential service in a lot of cases, um, mm-hmm. expose themselves to the risk of being out among this virus. But the developers really need to see this thing done so they can get their their return. And the owners yeah. are just kind of sh- like, "Holy shit! I'm this is really really bad because it, it might there's no way that this thousand thousand dollar a foot environment is going to appreciate to a fourteen hundred dollar foot. And there's no way that I'm getting that six thousand dollars of rent that I was promised now. Yeah, right? uh, what like. That, that can get ugly quickly, right?
1: And, and that's why it's so important to read the fine print and truly understand what could happen. I mean, if 100 people jump off a bungee jumping cord and they see that they're fine and you jump, the same risk applies to everybody. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, but in this type of scenario, you're kind of in bed with someone for several years you can't just jump off the ride. And so if you're depending on what you've signed, it will depend on who can walk, uh, from there. So it's, it's so for the people
0: scrambling, then what, if they're, if they're all flipping through their contracts right now, listening to this, what are they looking for?
1: Although you're gonna look for a clause as to what, uh, what happens if, if something, if X doesn't happen, who gets, uh, their payment out. Right. is really what it is um if x happens y occurs right. and in this type of scenario if the builder is not able to d- deliver or the entire project's canceled then there will be certain y's that happen and it it's important to know what that is um and yeah and especially in uh, toronto where you've got just a volume of, of yeah. new builds yeah of people that are just again in bed with a developer or with a builder um for many many years depending on where you're at it's one thing when you're third year of four and eventually you get built that's a different conversation than you just see the foundation in the it kind of being poured and you've got three more years of normal uh development and now it's it's being delayed for how much longer right Huh. And some people, of course, want to pull their money out because they don't want to be in bed anymore. Well, and they need a battle trick. Yeah, they just lost it.
0: a shitload of money, right?
1: Um. Yep. Yeah. And so then, when one person does it, another person wants to do it. You know what I just
0: thought of is too is like the tranching of these deposits because they're trying to make these things accessible to everyone. Like you know, it's like five percent in year one, and then like yep. like one percent. Like how how many people are still showing up with that remaining fifteen percent over the next three years? Is the, that's a question that's going to be? Uh... The,
1: the biggest thing is when, and one of the reasons why we've had so much success in the past decade is everybody has become extremely collaborative in in almost everything. Um, and this is true for the finance world, but it's also true for um, the healthcare world. Um, I was just having a conversation with my mom, um, and she's obviously got her world turned upside down with the retirement home. Um, But the amount of uh, support that people have um, and collaboration that people have with other professionals. So you've got for their world, they've got um, physiotherapists who come in and provide workouts for the, um, the residents. So they have all of that. For those who maybe have a little bit more intensive care where they've got to have someone there to provide a little bit extra service, they're not coming in either. And so it's all great when it all works but when you have something like this where that collaboration no longer occurs everything gets grinded to a halt and there's there's just simply more work for fewer people
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you're going to see it now where uh in terms of the deposits and in terms of the, these builds uh, we'll have to see
0: how much people want to collaborate now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the question then becomes, is it, is it better to to try and salvage this together or is it better to just tear it down and everybody loses equally? Like, is there a way to win equally or is it better off to lose equally? And I, I don't know, man, honestly, it's, that scares me. Like, there's too many question marks left. Like, especially with you look at the household debt curve of Canada. It's like, this. what is the, the time? I mean, something like this had to happen. Like, it could have been market, the market itself. But like, I don't know, it's the worst, worst possible thing to happen with, Canadian household debt being where it is, right?
1: Well, um, you make a good point on kind of making some satirical comments uh, on the reports that come out sometimes. But I mean, the amount of uh, debt and the amount of GDP that is produced in Canada simply based off the housing market, when people are taking out home equity lines of credit and using that to buy depreciating assets or to float their kids through college or to do stuff that never really sees the return to pay that back, your house can only go so much. Yeah. And when you get into a time like this, where you've always turned to your house as a piggy bank and now no lender is going to, or not no lender, but not as much are going to be interested in, in cashing out that pig or trusting it even to be saying that it's worth as much as it was.
0: Right, 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 yeah. I
1: don't know, yeah, it's, it's scary. Um, the biggest thing that I would advocate for people is become very intimate with your uh, personal financials. You should know how much you spend. You should know how much you make and where's that break even point? Um, because the biggest thing is, If this thing goes on, you made a point of it. This isn't the first month that things are going to suck. So if you're going to be in trouble in July, August, September, or you might be in trouble at the end of May, you should know that and kind of drum up some scenarios. And this is how much I need to survive and be okay. This is how much would be a little bit froth that, I'm spending what I really shouldn't be spending. Um, that's a, that's a very important thing that uh, people should be doing. And there's almost no excuse now because you have more than enough free time. If you, if you're not at now at home. For sure.
0: Um, on that note, and we'll, we'll, I'll end with this one. Um, unless there's anything else you want to add, but, um, what are, you, you know you mentioned what people can be personally doing to to weather this storm what are you doing if, if you, you know if you don't mind me asking you mentioned pulling pulling your your equity positions out which i think was smart and my timing was a little bit worse but but uh you know still not that bad and um what, what are you doing that people could learn from perhaps or um you know to get through this
1: uh, i think the biggest thing is take responsibility um just on everything, and if you are experiencing uh, some form of frustrations or difficulties uh, if you dig a little bit deeper, you could probably find out why those are caused um, so if that means that when you go to the store and some of the food that you want to buy buying isn't there, then it might be a better option that you shouldn't be doing takeout or something like that. You should learn how to make better meals and uh, healthier meals that generally cost that not that much. Um, You should be seeing what you can do in the neighborhood. There's lots of people who are extremely vulnerable right now. Um, Even just on a mental health perspective, you should be reaching out to family and see how they're doing. I mean, I've been in my house for the past week and I think I've talked more to my family now than I have in the month prior simply because the, the The busyness of life is not an excuse now for me to not communicate with them or or uh, lose track of time um, yeah. so I would yeah I would definitely recommend people connect with other people um talk to your grandparents they're they're still there um, and, uh, at the retirement home people have had more conversations with their grandparents now than they've had yes. ever before so there's lots of positive of this there's lots of negatives.
0: My big thing is just be prepared for the worst and and help everyone get through it. Amazing, man. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. And uh, it's been super insightful. I like that you finished off with that. It was very from the heart and very qualitative rather than, you know, I anticipated a quantitative answer. So that was actually really nice and a refreshing way to finish things off.
1: Thanks, man. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on here and keep up putting out the good content. Uh, It's been really informative for me. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. You as well. Bye.